0: Thank you for listening to this sermon from Goodwill Church, located in New York's Hudson Valley. Goodwill Church is on a mission to be a hub of revival in the Northeast and beyond. For more information about our church, please visit goodwillchurch.org. Now, here's the sermon. So as you can see, if you have your schedule or if you're looking up at the screen our Advent devotion or Advent... Uh, text for this morning uh, is Romans 16, 25 through 27. Those are the last words of the, uh, can we go back one? Yeah, there we go. Yeah. Those are the last words of the letter, the final words that Paul says to the Romans. Let me read them and we'll pray together. Now to him who is able to strengthen you, Heavenly Father, as we enter into this time in your word, under your word, may we be just that under it. May we be influenced by it. May we be shaped and transformed by it. May we apply our hearts and our minds to the consideration of your word, and may it too be an act of worship. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. So... When I was a young boy, eight or 9 years old, I had a friend of mine, his name was Jeff, and Jeff and I would hang out together after school, and and we'd we'd hang out a lot at his house and he had a a finished basement, so we'd be down there and the TV be on, Uh, but our favorite pastime far and away was drawing, before the days of video games, it's hard for some of you to imagine that, but um, we would draw. And we would sit at this table, and we would draw. We had lots of paper. And, and here's the thing that's interesting about that. Our drawing was probably largely, if not entirely, influenced by old Godzilla movies. Even back then, they were old. And, and here's how it worked. You start off with, with the, sort of the blank slate, the, 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 the blank canvas, and you draw Godzilla. You draw the big monster. And then the rest of that white space was free for us to fill with any and every version of mankind's attempt to fight the monster. And so we would draw tanks on the ground shooting at Godzilla and we'd draw soldiers on the ground shooting at Godzilla and we'd draw hills so we could put soldiers on the hills to shoot at Godzilla and we'd have mountains so soldiers could be on the mountains shooting at Godzilla and we'd have planes flying around shooting at Godzilla. Jeff was a well, he was what I would describe as a more audio drawer than I was. That's my own term. He'd make sound effects when he drew. You know, so when the tanks would shoot, he'd be like, and you know, he would shoot, and the planes, he'd fly around, he'd make all kinds of noises. I was a little bit more quiet. But nonetheless, we would draw, and we would draw for hours. And by the time we were done, there was no white space on the page. There was always room to put one more guy shooting something at Godzilla. You might put it this way, or you might say it this way, that for Jeff and I, the old adage that less is more just didn't resonate with us. We liked more. More is more. More guns, more soldiers, more tanks, more planes, more anything to fight Godzilla. Now... The Apostle Paul is also known as a man who doesn't really uphold the notion that less is more. To back that up, let me just give you a few points about that. We can start by noting that Peter tells us that Paul's words are hard to understand. Now, that doesn't tell us that there's a lot of them, but they're hard to understand. People twist them. But what we can say in terms of how many there are is Paul alone is responsible for nearly half of the New Testament. There's 27 books. Paul's written 13 of them. And next to Luke, he has the most volume. So Luke's gospel and the book of Acts are by Luke, and that's the most volume. Next is Paul. Now, while Paul would likely have held up the words of Solomon, particularly with regard to prayer, that your words ought to be few, his letters would say otherwise. And so would his preaching. Just ask Eutychus. And if you don't know who Eutychus is, turn to the book of Acts, not now, and in chapter 20 you can read the story of a young man named Eutychus who sat under Paul's preaching. He sat in a windowsill. And he listened to Paul preach on into the night, and it was so long that Eutychus eventually fell asleep and fell out of the window and was killed. And the Lord raised him back to life. If you think I'm boring and go a long time, you're in good hands. So letters by Paul are long. Preaching was long. He's not a man of few words per se. Um, And we have that established. But let's just ask another question as we jump in. What is with the theme of joy, a time for joy, is that? That might even seem a bit confusing to you. After all, it was last week that we lit the joy candle, and we talked about humility then. Now this morning, we're talking about the love candle, and then we're talking about joy, or we lit the love candle, and we're talking about joy. So what is the deal with joy? Well, let me tell you this, that joy comes from, among other things, it comes from knowledge. Now, let me just kind of tease that out a little bit for you. Maybe you've heard the phrase that knowledge is power. And, of course, there's truth to that. There's a sense in which it's true. But knowledge that's power, that kind of knowledge, is largely, if not exclusively, informational in nature. That's the knowledge that we have in mind. But the knowledge that brings joy is primarily relational in nature. Knowing God and being known by him Brings joy. And Paul has both of these things, by the way. He knows and is known by God, and he has both informational knowledge of God, and therefore he has relational knowledge of God. You can't have true relational knowledge of God without informational knowledge of God. You can have informational knowledge and not have relational, but you can't have it the other way around. But Paul having that, that relational knowledge, brings joy. And I, I want us to see this. I want us to see this morning that, that Paul's joy, it, uh, it actually spills over onto the pages of his letter. His letters, I should say. It takes the form of informational knowledge, but also, and never categorically distinct from the relational aspect of this knowledge. I want us to see that. I want us to see that that even here at the very end of this letter to the Romans, and this is a letter that, by the way, uh, many have uh, observed over the centuries is probably Paul's tour de force. It's his theological masterpiece. But let me tell you, it's all those things, but it's also Paul being deeply pastoral. It's Paul actually making a plea for money for missions work. All those things are in there too, by the way. But even at the end of this letter, there's this great uh, in- infectious joy that just injects itself right up until the very end. Here's what I want to do I want to put the verses on the screen. I want to. They're there. I want you to look at those verses, and I want to ask you a question. Here's the question. If I were to ask you to finish talking about the most joyful subject in your life, and I would ask you to do it in one sentence, what would you say? This is one sentence, by the way. And by the way, Paul, who's not a less is more guy, loves long sentences. He's well known for the run on sentence, and this is not his longest by any stretch of the imagination. But what would you say? Just one sentence to to wrap up the most joyful topic there is. What would you say? That's what I want you to think about here as we start to dive in. Paul is endeavoring to do just that. And he does it from a couple of different angles. He's smart about it. He's thoughtful. He's intentional. And we see this in this sentence. We see the, the smart and intentional idea. Paul brings a number of motifs up. In this letter, so these, this motif is, a, is something that's repeated throughout the, the letter. If you're a musician, you understand that motifs are usually like a short succession of notes that are familiar, that you play a little, play a little bit with, but there's a memorable phrase and they're sort of tastefully placed throughout a composition. And Paul does that a bit here, actually. He does that in this letter. In fact, you have the last words of the letter on the screen, but let me just read you some of the first words to give you a little bit of a sense of that. Paul says in verse 25, now to him who is able to strengthen you, and he says in verse 11 of chapter 1, for I long to see you that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. So we see this idea uh, of the gospel having uh, uh, this impact of strengthening us, equipping us for the mission. And speaking of gospel, Paul says... Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel. Gospel not only bookends this letter, it's throughout the letter. But Paul actually opens up this letter. The very first verse says that Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart the gospel of God. And of course the gospel of God, and when Paul says my gospel, they are in fact one and the same. We have the mystery of this gospel being hidden as well. We see that in 26, but now this has been disclosed. The revelation in uh, the second part of 25, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed through the prophetic writings. That's hinted at at the beginning of the letter as well. Verse 2 says, uh, this gospel that, that Paul was set apart for, the gospel of God, which was promised beforehand through the prophets in the Holy Scriptures. And so this idea is conveyed as well. And then lastly, not lastly, but the last one that I'll give you is the idea of obedience of faith that we see. That's there in verse 26. That this would be made known to the nations according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith. We see that in verse 5 of chapter 1, all the way back at the beginning of the letter, through whom we receive grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith. And so Paul is, is intentional in smart about how he is expressing his joy on the page he's not just letting it flow out it's flowing out but he's doing it very intentionally and our focus is to be on this idea this knowledge of god that results in this great joy i've said that paul is not a man of few words and that he's very intentional in his wording that's shown by these motifs that we talked about here they resurface here at the end of the letter But I want to just share with you a little bit of how um, N.T. Wright, sort of the person who's inspiring this this, uh, set, this little series on Advent, how he considers these words. He does them by kind of looking at them the way you're looking at them right now. He's imagining them like the way he sees them. And he kind of envisions them a little bit like a pyramid. So you would almost look at the last verse as the foundation of the pyramid, and it builds its way up. And he describes it as a little bit of a top-heavy pyramid, Because he, too, recognizes that Paul is wordy. He sees it like a pyramid. And it starts at the bottom and begins with God. God, who is the only one who receives glory, and he receives it forever. And the bottom of this pyramid, uh, by the way, can be divided up into three different parts. Uh, We can think about this throughout these, these verses. One is, well, what is it that God does? Well, he strengthens us through the gospel. He strengthens us through the gospel. But we want to see two other things particular to the gospel. So the first thing is that the gospel strengthens us. The second thing is that the gospel is the fulfillment of the age-old story of Israel and God. The story that the prophets have told from old. This is not a new thing. This is the fulfillment of an old thing. And then lastly, that the gospel, now fulfilled, is being spread around the world through us, but primarily by God. And why is that, by the way? We do well to ask. Why is it being spread? What's the point for the obedience of faith? And it's probably good for me to take a moment to just talk a little bit about that phrase because that probably invokes some weird thoughts. Does that mean that if I'm really obedient, I get faith? It means just the opposite. It means genuine faith in God produces obedience. Genuine faith in God is the faith that says, I now belong to another. My citizenship belongs to another kingdom. I'm no longer part of this world. I belong to another, and my delight in that other, my joy in that other, because of the salvation he gives me, results in the fruit of desiring to be obedient to him, changing who I am, transforming me. That's what the gospel does through the power of the Spirit. And so we want to see those three points. And they kind of make up the the framework of this robust and joyful sentence of the Apostle Paul. But as we said, Paul is not a less is more kind of guy. And so, of course, he adds to that. What does he add? Well, he highlights how this gospel has been made known because of the prophetic writings. And so we have in those prophetic writings uh, centuries and centuries of anticipation of the gospel, a hope in the gospel, in the hope of the gospel, if I might say it, a joyful anticipation of the gospel. Listen to the way the Apostle Peter describes this idea of the prophets of old seeing the hope of the gospel. Here's what he writes in 1 Peter Just one verse. He says this, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was yours, was to be yours. By the way, let me just tell you, Peter's writing to his audience, and he's saying the prophets of what we now would call the Old Testament were writing about the joy that's yours. He's talking to his audience, to his listeners, and that's you and I as well. That joy, the prophets that prophesied concerning that joy that was to be searched out and inquired, they inquired carefully carefully. Inquiring, listen to this what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. That's a a mouthful to be sure, but here's here's what I want you to see. Peter is saying, I am recognizing that the prophets of the Old Testament were pointing towards Christ. They were predicting not only who, but when he would come and suffer and then glean and enter into the glories that would follow. So they see the centrality of Christ in all of Scripture, that is declared by the prophets. Now, Paul is also eager to convey that this gospel, it comes about by the command of God. That's also in this long sentence. In fact, it's the eternal God. He adds that little nugget as well, which is, of course, all important. In fact, Rome, the Romans, in many ways, they labored to say that this long story of God and Israel has finally, joyfully come uh, to fruition, The book of Romans says that. So Paul is writing to them and he's trying to say, this is coming to fruition finally. This is coming to fulfillment and and he's, he's eager for them to share in that joy, to see that, to sort of take that in. But of course, fulfillment by and in Christ must not be equated with completion. The work of Christ is done, of course, but God isn't done yet. He's still working He's working by his spirit in and through us. He's working through the intercession of Christ, seated at his right hand in glory. And so he's not done. And notice too that Paul at the bottom of this pyramid gives God the glory. But he can't just give God the glory. He can't do it without talking about Jesus. And so even here he just includes a little bit of Jesus Right at the very end. To the only wise God be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. And let me note one other thing here that Paul mentions that he adds in his tradition of not being a less is more guy. It's not just that God gets the glory. It's not that just God gets the glory forevermore through Jesus Christ, but it's the only wise God. Paul here at the end wants to sort of inject the idea of wisdom that's prominent throughout Scripture and prominent in this letter, by the way. Paul mentions wisdom on a number of occasions in this book, and most of them are actually kind of negative He's warning against the the dangers of a perceived wisdom, a false wisdom that's really nothing but pride. But some other examples include uh, just a few verses before this, verse 19 of this chapter. Paul writes, For your obedience is known to all so that I rejoice over you, but I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. Back in chapter 11, Paul, in really what could amount as as sort of another conclusion, another doxology, a declaration of praise to God, another benediction, if you will, Paul writes, oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. And so Paul is in his eagerness to spread his joyful knowledge of God to the Romans and therefore to us also includes this wisdom, the wisdom of God. And by the way, wisdom is something that's quite central or was quite central in the ancient world. It was one of the the chief virtues of the ancient world. It's very much valued in Scripture as well. In fact, we have an entire section of Scripture known as the wisdom literature. And, And God's wisdom is distinct from all other forms of wisdom. It's distinct in that he alone, as the creator, understands how the whole world works. And he understands us. He understands how we think. He understands how we fail. And in his wisdom, he knows how to change that, how to correct that, if you will. He knows that only through this correcting, this changing of us, only through this joyful sanctification, this joyful conforming us to be like him, only then can we come to know true joy in Christ. N. T. Wright speaks of this wisdom in his devotional on this passage. I haven't shared anything directly from him yet, so I'm going to share a little bit this morning. He says this: "This is the hidden wisdom from which the secret plan, the plan now unveiled in the gospel, the gospel which was evoked as its proper response, the faith, the obedience of faith, the faith which is open to the whole world. And when you see the end from the beginning in this way, when you glimpse even a little of what Paul has glimpsed of the wisdom, love, grace, power, and glory of the eternal God revealed in Jesus the Messiah, then you too will want to join him in joyfully piling up all the glory and praise and love and adoration that you can muster. You won't care just how big of a splash you make when you do that. In other words, you will not care just how many words you use to do that. In other words, what, what, what we're getting at here is that Paul here at the end is letting his joy pour out on the page, and he's, he's not trying to streamline it to say something uh, catchy. He's trying to just let it all out because there's so much to say. How do you feel when you're that excited, that joyful over another person, another relationship, over God? Let joy overflow for you in a way that you can talk about it nonstop. So with that, let me just ask the question one more time as we prepare to come to the table that I asked in the beginning. If I were to ask you to finish talking about the most joyful thing, the most joyful topic, what would that sentence look like? And let me highlight it this way by saying, If I were to ask you to write about the joy you have in Jesus, would your sentence be like this, or would it be a little thinner? And that's a pressing question for us to ask as we prepare to celebrate the birth of Christ, the incarnation, the the uniqueness and profound miracle that is the incarnation. We'll talk about that uh, tonight for those who will come tonight, but that's what we prepare to do, that God becomes one of us To save us. There is great, great joy in that. Profound and deep, deep joy in that. And that takes us to this table. As I say often, this is the the visible word. We've listened to the word preached, and now we come to the visible word. Were the display of the gospel in visible form here in this sacrament? As we often say, the, the the atoning work of Christ. Well, that's something that is impossible without the incarnation of Christ. Jesus, we often say, came to die, but he did a whole lot more than come to die. He came to live perfectly. He came to die substitutionarily. He also came to gift us His Spirit. That you and I could be the church. That you and I could be equipped by the Spirit in this age to point people to the age to come by the giftings of the Spirit for the glory of Christ. That is what it is to be the church. Let me pray. Father, thank You for Your Word. Thank You for this table. Thank You for the sacrament. Lord, I pray now that you you would take this cup and this bread and you would set them apart for a holy purpose, that they might become to our faith your body broken and your blood shed for the forgiveness of sins. pray these things in your name, Jesus. Amen. Thank you again for listening to today's sermon. For more resources and information about Goodwill Church, visit goodwillchurch.org. God bless.